Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we talk all about science. Who are we? Well, I am Stu and with me on the show this week, I have, as usual, Claire. Oh, hello, Stu. And what have you brought in for us this week, Claire? Well, I have a special guest with us this week. I'm speaking to... Valerie Karen, who um, comes from Canberra, she's um, uh, she's a CSIRO scientist um, specialising in dung beetles. That's right, dung beetles. And why are we talking about dung beetles? Well, Stu, as you know, they are an essential part of the ecosystem. You've got to have dung beetles, and and but don't you? Do you have to have different dung beetles for different animals? Is that how it works? That's how it works, exactly. So I'm going to be talking to Valerie a little bit about um, the native dung beetles that we have in Australia um, and how, you know, I guess for those dung beetles, they uh, they break down dung from native species. But what do we do about all the other species that we've introduced and being able to break down the literal, you know, poo loads of poo? that we have uh, from cows and sheep and horses and everything else. So um, Valerie's going to give us the lowdown on the dung beetle. That's a big pile of interesting stuff coming up. And Chris. <laughs> well, um, I am stepping outside my comfort zone this week a bit, Stu. Um, I am looking at what is perhaps more law than science, but it's basically science meets the law. And some of the recent reporting you may have seen about a case in the High Court involving physicist Peter Ridd, who was sacked from James Cook University in Queensland over his comments about uh, Great Barrier Reef science. Um, look, it's an interesting case. It's about... It's about um, you know, employee behaviour, enterprise bargaining agreements. It's about um, academic freedom. It's about the vibe of the thing. It's <laughs> it's all of that. Um, and it's become, I guess, a bit of a signifier in the cultural wars because this um, this is someone who has been criticising the understanding of the Great Barrier Reef in danger and has been embraced by conservative media, which is kind of what got us into trouble in the first place or the way he talked to said conservative media. But I will go into detail on that. Um, so we will address that and also address the question of why it is always the physicists who are causing the trouble. Um, it's the eternal question. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who knew you could cover so much in half an hour of science? Exactly. It's wide ranging. It's ongoing. It's just BS from one end to the other. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, on with the show. So dung beetles play a huge part in our ecosystem, breaking down animal poop. And in Australia, we have dung beetles, you know, galore. But most of them only break down native animal feces. 
But what about introduced species? How does that break down? Well, to help shed some light on this, we have CSIRO research scientist, Dr. Valerie Caron, to talk to us all about the good work of the dung beetle. Valerie, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi. Hello. Now, tell us, why why are dung beetles so important in the ecosystem? Well, dung beetles are the best recycler, I guess. They use dung and um, get rid of it for us. So they're very good recycler, but they're also what we can call ecosystem engineers. So their role is so important that actually can have an impact on the entire ecosystem. ecosystem. So um, uh, when you say ecosystem engineers, what does that mean? Well, that means that what they're doing, so if if we take the example of uh, livestock that were introduced to Australia, talking about cows, uh, donkeys, horse, (laughs) all these different animals we brought to Australia and sheep, um, so they, with them, we brought them because every day they will poop around, the dung that would accumulate in the landscape. And if you don't have dung beetles, getting rid of that dung, it just accumulates there and just stays there. So the dung beetle provides that service, that ecosystem, getting rid of the dung by putting it in the soil, so burying it in the soil where the plant needs it, so the nutrients go to the plants, you know, to the roots where it's needed. Uh, they aerate the soil, so they do a lot of different, they have a lot of different functions that are very important for the rest of the ecosystem. So if you get more plants, you get more um, other organisms after that. So it's, it's, it's all a very important part of a cycle. So what you're saying is dung beetles are m- moving it around the environment, moving this dung around and spreading out the nutrients. Yeah, so getting rid of, like instead of having the nutrients all at the top, where it's not usable and where it can cause, you know, water pollution after runoff and things like that. Uh, what it does is it brings the dung straight down to the soil profile, it, where the roots are, and that's where you know the plants need the nutrients um, and they can absorb it from through their roots. So they are, yeah, m- moving I guess the nutrients in the landscape. And why do they do this? But, well, they actually it's very cute in some ways because they need it. Well, first of all, to eat. But the adult actually don't have any mouth parts to eat much of dung. They can, they just have like, they can just suck the juice from the dung. <laughs> but what they really need is for their offspring. So the larva feed on the dung. So that's the only thing they will eat is dung. So what the uh, dung beetle adults do is they make a little bowl, a little sausage of poop. They'll make a little chamber inside. Um, will just say one egg. And then that egg will hatch into a larva and the larva will eat that dung and re-poo it and re-eat it and re-poo it. So we'll just kind of keep, um, yeah, because it's not very high quality food. So they have to do that a few times <laughs> to actually really get all the nutrients they can out of it. But that's really for their offspring to grow. And then the larva will eventually pupate and become an adult. So they really need it to, uh, yeah, to complete their life cycle. Wow. Which is really incredible that they are adapted to that. And not just that, they are adapted to dung, but not every dung. So every species is kind of a little bit fussy. And they have a, a preferred dung source as well. So yeah. that was going to be my next question. Are they found everywhere around the world? Um, this is a good question. They are on every continent except Antarctica, as far as I know. So there are 5,000 species in the world. So that's quite a lot. We have 500 in Australia. So we have a huge diversity of dung beetles in Australia. Um, 
And uh, yeah, they found pretty much everywhere, but because they're very specialized on, on the dungware, they evolved. So for, in, for instance, the 500 species we have in Australia really seem to prefer marsupial dung because they have co-evolved with, with marsupials. Um, and it's the reason why we introduced dung beetles that like cow dung and sheep dung, all the sloppy stuff, uh, because the native species didn't like it um, and couldn't deal with, with, with all the, the dung produced by the livestock. Yeah, so, so tell us a bit more about that research. Um, and this is something, this is a project that you work on at the CSIRO, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and it's a very, uh, it's quite an interesting one. And I love working on it. For, it's one of the reasons why I like to work on this project. It's such a long history of it. So, um, so you know, so uh, the livestock was here for a long time, for about 200 years before someone actually understood that there was something missing. So all that dung accumulating on the surface was not quite right. So that's someone called George Bonamitsa that kind of made that link. So he, from, he was from Hungary and he, he, like, he was a Cyrus scientist. And then so from that thought, I guess, um, they started studying dung beetles uh, in Africa and in Europe and trying to figure out if we bring some dung beetles in Australia, what, what happens. And so dung beetles have been introduced since the 19, 1960s. So they've been you know, introduced for a long time. So we are at the moment as part of this project as a you know the new iteration of a very long program that CSR has had. So there's 45 species already that have been introduced in Australia, but only 23 established. And now uh, so they've done a fabulous job. They have helped with you know getting rid of that dung that was at the surface. They've done a very good job of that. But there's still many gaps in uh, that are left. And mm. where the dung accumulate and nothing can, you know, not, not, not much is happening. So, so these are the gaps we're really focusing. So there are seasonal gaps and there are geographical gaps as well. So this part of our project is really to focus on the spring gap. So early spring, late winter, early spring in Southern Australia. So all the way from WA to, you know, Tasmania to, to New South Wales and really focusing on trying to find beetles that in early spring can get rid of that dung. Because what happened is that all these bushflies, I haven't mentioned yet, but the bushflies breed on, in dung. And all those native flies, um, the ones that are very annoying, mm-hmm. they come to your eyes and your ears, and they're very, uh-huh. you know, they can be actually really a real pest. So they breed in the dung. So, and, and it is a time of the year when they get blown from Northern Australia. And then if they come south, when there's a lot of dung, they can just breed and, and, and go crazy. So we're really trying to get rid of that you know, at, at that time. And so our project is to try to find the best beetles to do this, to introduce them in the country, which is a very long process. It's something that is quite, um, yeah, quite drawn. And we want it to be difficult because we don't want to bring anything nasty with them. And um, so there's that. And then also we want to see, because it's a big national project, SARA is only one part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the project is also to figure out what's, what are the benefits of dung beetles? So what are the, exactly the benefits of dung beetles? And try to bring it back to the farm. So, so come the farmers um, to you know, learn how to um, manage their dung beetle as a mini livestock, I guess, as part of their right. major management. So there's a lot of different parts to the national program. CSR is really leading the importation side of things. Okay, so when you say um, there's a gap in um, dung beetles operating in springtime, does that mean the species of dung beetles that uh, have been introduced to Australia, they're dormant during springtime? Yeah, so that's 
so it's very interesting because dung beetles, the, every species is different. They all have their little quirks, they all have their little behavior, but they also have their own activity time. So some species will be active in winter, some species will be active, active in, in spring or, or in summer. Uh, and and when, they're not, when they're not breeding, they might be around, but when they're not breeding, they're not really you know, using a lot of the dung. So, so we really, ideally, if it was possible to have, you know, a dung beetle for every season and every area, that would be ideal. Um, mm -hmm. That might not be possible. Yeah. But we, we are kind of working towards that, at least with a spring gap, which is a major gap. Right. Um, and I'm sort of imagining uh, how you go about scouring the world for the best, most productive dung beetles um, to fill the gaps that we have in our calendar. Um, yeah. Is there, is there some sort of market? Is there some sort of conference? Um, uh, they no. all come together and show their wares. What, what does that look like? What does it look like? Well, first of all, you have to figure out where's the best part of the world to go and, and you know, where, where to focus. So one thing with dung beetles is that we have changed a lot of the farming management techniques, you know, everywhere in the world. It has changed a lot. So, um, you know, for example, in Europe, there used to be a lot of dung beetles, but their population, some species are now endangered. So their population have reduced a lot because of the change of farming practices. So, you know, drenching, for, for example, which we do a lot of in, in Australia, can have a huge impact on, mm. um, on dung beetle population. So, so Europe can be... Drenching being um, something you do to sheep to get rid of... Cows, yeah. Yeah, to control the parasite load. Parasites. They're not parasites, yeah. And that actually can, you know, depending on the product they use, can actually have an impact for the dung beetle population, like quite mm -hmm. dramatically for several weeks. So, so that's the kind of thing that, that has changed. But also a lot of places, um, you know, livestock stay more indoors than it used to. So it has changed a lot. So, so you know, dung beetles evolved with livestock because of the, the farming practices that were then, but then it has changed. So, so first of all, you have to make sure you go somewhere where the climate match. So in this case, when we think about Southern Australia, it's kind of Mediterranean climate, or, you know, it can be um, kind of subtropical if you go a little bit further further north, but, you know, it's, it's kind of an, there's quite a lot of areas in the world, I guess, that can match. But then you also have to think about, um, is it a place where we can go collect mm -hmm. beetles? Do we have, you know, ties with, with people over there? Um, is it a place where there are lots of dung beetles? So we actually focus on Morocco, because Morocco is actually spot on when you think about climate. Um, and also they have a lot of diverse climate because they have um, mountains and, and all that. So you can actually play mm. even within the country to get different type of, uh, of dung beetles. And also their farming practices is still based a lot on herding. So you mm. have, you know, shepherds that move around with their livestock mm. so, and there's not as much drenching. So the population of dung beetles are incredible over there. Mm. So that's what, one of the reasons why we work with, uh, in, like with, with our collaborators in Morocco. So we have collaborators in Morocco. We have a laboratory in France, which is CSR as well, and then in Australia. So we've got effectively three teams that are working together, um, which is not the best during a pandemic, by the way, yeah. <laughs> managing a, an international project like that. But I yeah, can so really imagine. working with Morocco. Yeah, wonderful. That's so interesting to hear that Morocco and Australia have a very similar sort of climate and sort of um, uh, patterns there. And that was part one of Claire's interview with Valerie Caron of the CSIRO. 
Come back next week to find out more about their search for dung beetles, including what they're doing to prevent any biosecurity problems. (laughs) All right, so regular listeners of the show will know that I often pick on physicists stepping outside their domain, to say the least. Because they do do it a lot. You do love that. You do love that. Do you pick on them or do you highlight them for the eclectic individuals that they are? I I think I pick on them, but I'm a, but you know as you as you may know I am a physicist myself, so I'm allowed to you know I kind of get that that free pass. Yeah. Um. But like it does puzzle me sometimes of why physicists think they know more than anybody else. I mean, you guys are probably sitting there thinking, yeah, look, we we know we're familiar with this. Yeah, you We've don't have to physicists explain physicists thinking they know everything to us. Yeah. But why do they? That's that's the interesting thing, I guess. I mean, physics obviously is the science that tries to delve into the deeper mysteries of the universe and arguably has achieved some, you know, some great things, like in terms of its understanding of, of the fundamental laws of nature. And that might be one reason why physicists think they're better than everybody else. <laughs> Um, I don't know, but there is something, I think, in the way that physicists are trained and... Um, uh, behave in that you're kind of taught this is in my experience of the education you're kind of taught as a physicist to that you can actually attack any problem with just a bit of logic a bit of maths and that there are no barriers in domains you can just apply your brain and everyone should just make way for you i think it is part of the education of physicists which is kind of a scary thing and they get us in the trouble that we have pretty sure it was a physicist who told me that uh if if the science that you study ends in ology, you're not a real scientist. I think that came from a physicist. <laughs> There's another was... famous quote that all science is either physics or stamp collecting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we won't go down that path. Look, one of the what um, I have a, a big example I want to talk about. But one of the most recent examples, a uh, there was an op-ed piece that was in the Wall Street Journal that kind of revived a lot of interest in the COVID nineteen lab leak hypothesis. And this was written by, among others, um, Richard A. Muller, who was a physicist um, for the University of California. Um, he was claiming that the, I guess, some of the, some of the genetic structure of the the virus, the coronavirus in question, was indicating that it was made artificially. Now, clearly, he is not a virologist; he is a physicist. Oh, and I should say, a lot of people, actual virologists, have pointed out. There is some logic with his argument as well. Uh, some of the things he pointed to being clearly artificial can be found easily in nature and in other coronaviruses. So it's not actually that that um, spectacular. But what I found interesting was Richard A. Muller has form in this field. He was previously best known for being a climate change sceptic who questioned the mm. whole notion of global warming. Um, somehow got funding to completely reanalyze all the world temperature records and only to confirm that, oh, the globe actually is warming after all. Um, thereby, I suppose, look, he, maybe he, he settled a few arguments, but he also wasted a lot of people's time, I think, by just um, arguing enough to be able to confirm what we already knew all along. But, hey, uh, now he has moved on to uh, COVID-19, as a lot of people with strong opinions are doing. But he's not the main physicist I want to talk about. I want to talk about the recent high court case um, between Peter Ridd and James Cook University. Have you seen any of this, you guys? 
Yeah, just just a little bit. Um, I haven't I haven't been following the story too much, um, but he's a climate scientist and sort of goes against uh, what most climate scientists have shown about the warming of the atmosphere. What you have just expressed, I guess, is how this is viewed popularly. It's not what the actual court case is about, or indeed, I guess the 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 meat of the legal the legal matter, which is an interesting thing that it has come to represent a lot more than what the actual court case is. Um, what it actually is is he is a physicist who worked for James Cook University. Uh, he questioned his colleagues' conclusions about the effect of climate change and pollution on the Great Barrier Reef, and his. Criticisms of his colleagues were um, so full on that it led to him being dismissed from James Cook University for violations of their code of conduct. So he has since been um, appealing on the basis of academic freedom, saying Mm. he should be able to say what he wants. It has gone backwards and forwards. Initially, his appeal was successful. Then that was overturned. Uh, Now it has been heard in the High Court of Australia, the highest court in Australia, um, and in a few months they are expected to deliver their judgment. So it was really that question about does rules about what you, how you can behave as an employee, how does that relate to your academic freedom? But it is seeing being seen as, I guess, a battle in the culture wars with, as you rightly said, Claire, um, the climate change sceptics lining up behind Peter Ridd and um, people on the other side essentially wanting him to be shut down because he is questioning understood science. But, you know, really it is it is a more narrow case than that. Um, I think there are legitimate questions here about how academic freedom interacts with things like um, employee code of conduct. But there's no simple answer. I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to understand. Even though I'm a physicist, I don't pretend to know everything <laughs> about the law. He didn't just publish papers questioning his colleagues' um, conclusions. He went on Sky News, of all kind of media outlets, and said things like how the re-science could not be trusted, that his colleagues were putting emotion instead of, the, instead of objectivity. And basically, he wasn't just... Yeah, it wasn't just a, um, a dispassionate academic view that he was putting forward. It was, yeah, speaking to journalists and saying disparaging things about his colleagues. And that is the reason that he was, he was sacked from James Cook. But I don't know. Um, on the other hand, one, on one hand, I think you want someone like him to be <laughs> to be slapped down. But on the other hand, it does, you know, it does this affect what people are able to do and in an academic context. I don't know if you, mm. you, do you have any view on that kind of mm. uh, So the, the question is, should he have lost his job over questioning science and, and academic research? Yeah, that's right. Is it the manner he did it or the fact that he was questioning mm. which which um, comes more important? Because you know, we don't want people to be able to, to have to stop questioning. But on the other hand, if you are being unreasonable in your questioning, and then, as I said, this has led to a whole kind of culture war battles. Um, he has the support of the industry and agriculture bodies in Queensland who are basically um, following his call for essentially an independent body to re-examine all science that they don't like and it has you know could potentially have far-reaching effects in that sense yeah it's just become a bit of a circus i think as evidenced by the uh, the lawyers involved in the case peter Reed is represented by one Stuart wood qc who most notably i think represented israel falau after his right. uh, unfair dismissal case from mm-hmm. rugby australia the university is being represented by brett walker who um was george pell's lawyer 
So it's kind of wow. notable figures on both sides. Um, it makes it hard to know who to who to cheer for in this context. Yeah, so look, it is an interesting one in the culture wars. I do think that, as I said, there are some questions about academic freedom involved in this and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But it is a shame that it is now being seen, I guess, as on the one hand, vindication for, by the conservative side of politics of their climate change sceptic views. And yeah, I guess that is not something that we want to see coming out of this, whatever the, the way it pans out. Yes, Stu? Now, one of the things that I would, I would like to uh, say at this point is, is that if you do have a disagreement with the science questions that are being raised by other people, the science uh, conclusions that people have come to, the way to solve that is by doing better science and showing where they've gone wrong with the science, showing how they've got the wrong conclusions out of what they've discovered, not by going on Sky News and you know insulting their work or or draw trying to draw their work into disrepute. And and on the other side of the the issue is the is the workplace stuff, which is again if you have problems with colleagues that you work with you don't take those public you you, there's processes to go through where you know you go to management you put in you know formal processes and you get done what you want to do so i think um in both in both kind of arenas he's really not followed the protocols and i think that's probably why the university has said yeah hey look we've got a problem with this guy look he did he did publish um a an opinion piece criticising um, the the understanding of the state of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, that was in the journal Marine Pollution Bulletin, and there has been a few back-and-forth kind of comments between him and the people that he he uh, commented on. Um, I am not... I am not in a position to really analyse the arguments, the scientific arguments on both sides. You know, I don't want to go down that line because it is kind of a marine pollution question. Um, so he certainly did that. But I do think, yeah, the comments in to journalists and to Sky News seem to be um, yeah, a bit beyond what you would expect. But I guess there is a certain understanding from some people that people working in universities should have more freedom to say whatever they want than anybody else. Um, I will say, too, that even though he's a physicist, um, people have kind of, a lot of people have landed, sort of focused on the fact that he his PhD thesis was on the topic of what's called the input impedance of horizontal linear antennas above a layered ground plane. So it sounds like it has nothing to do with reef science. And so saying, who is this guy and what does he think he's doing criticising marine science? Um, he has actually been working on the Great Barrier Reef and particularly um, oceanography, which is a branch of physics, um, for, let me see, over over 30 years. So I think he does, I think he is qualified to comment on marine pollution given his academic background. So I guess, you know, we shouldn't go too far in saying just because this guy's a physicist doesn't mean he, he's not allowed to talk here. I'm just saying it's always the physicists who'd say this, do this stuff. And, you know, just once I like a different <laughs> discipline of science to be causing all this trouble. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough, 
Lost in Science for you. You can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.